It's never about context being in or out. The question is what the relevant context is. How concepts and theories are created within specific contexts. Ceteris non paribus, meaning all other things not being equal. Hello fellow historians of economic thought, of economics, economists and anyone else interested in our newly founded podcast. We are very excited to share yet another interesting talk with you. This time we'll be airing a recording of a seminar at LSE that took place on the 15th of November 2017. Many of you will have heard of the Historical and Philosophical Perspectives on Economics, or HPPE, seminar organized by PhD students at the Economic History Department at LSE, established by Gerardo Serra and Raphael Schwartzberg in 2012. The seminar brings together scholars from different disciplines to discuss the evolution of economic thinking and embraces topics from ancient Greece to contemporary Africa. The seminar inquires how the theory and practice of economics changes with the historical and philosophical context. The seminar aims to provide scholars at any stage of their career with an opportunity to discuss their work with a critical audience. For further information, please contact the current convener, Cheng Tang Cheng. This seminar that I recorded was particularly interesting to me. As some of you may know, I'm writing a thesis on Indian political economy in the late 19th century. So Debjani Bhattacharya's presentation on the science of planning, notes from Indian economic history, had me on the edge of my seat. Dr. Debjani Bhattacharya is an assistant professor of history at Drexel University in the US. As you will discover in this episode, at the HPPE seminar, she presented some of her latest work on the science of planning in colonial India at the beginning of the 20th century. I think you will all agree with me that the themes of planning, nationalism, and economic growth are all still very relevant today. Indeed, The Economist just published a long essay on nationalism in their Christmas double issue. As usual, you can find relevant links about Debjani and the HPPE seminar series on our website, ceterisnonparibus.net. Finally, thank you to both Debjani for agreeing to air this seminar and to Tang for organizing the HPPE seminars this year. So without further ado, here comes the presentation, followed by a questions and answer session. Indian, India's planning history primarily begins with decolonization. And there are a couple of ways the existing literature defines planning. Technocratization of state administration with its first prime minister, Jindal Nehru, birth of a specific Indian kind of socialism, institutionalization of a developmental agenda through the National Planning Commission. Planning euphoria marked the post independence movement of nation building. So the existing scholarship often then denotes planning as a medium through which decision-making regarding national priorities got shifted from politicians to technocrats. Not just in India, but everywhere else <clears throat> in the decolonizing world, planning became synonymous with modern high modernism, and that was where people like the social scientists and historians have located its failings. Planning in many ways, therefore, was understood as a method through which new forms of knowledge developed in the 20th century were being applied and experimented with in order to solve India's economic problems. For independent India, one of the main goals was determining how to feed the hungry nation of millions, 330 million rough, is the rough estimate of the Indian population. Feeding our nation became, of course, a political quagmire, as we know. Amidst this situation, planning was popularized as a political tool, a non-partisan tool of a political non-partisan tool of governance, a purportedly disinterested in instrument working towards creating 
a developmental state which could remain insulated from the realm of politics. Or as James Ferguson puts it, the anti-politics machine of development that would be the tie that could lift all roads. This political nature of planning was not a given and has a history. And so does the struggle to make planning a political also have a long history. But here, we perhaps we need to pause and ask what is planning? The existing literature from India points to two sets of answers. There are answers which are either descriptors of historically particular economic formations and practices like Soviet-style centralized economy or Nehruvian policies or Nehruvian socialism. And then there is the articulation of a universal economic agenda of gov for governance that is not necessarily geopolitically contingent. <clears throat> These answers alert us to the fact that there are multiple formations where the economy and the practices of the government overlap, sometimes with or without consensus. So in my larger project, I want to focus on how these overlaps came to be understood in the, in the, in the various debates and discussions around planning from the mid middle decades of the 20th century in India. So what, if this ends up being a larger project, the way I'm dividing it up is the first phase from the 1930s onward, which is much more of an experimental phase where things kept failing. Then from the late 40s, it's when the Congress was taking, in the International Congress was seriously thinking about planning, is the pl phase of drafting and playing with ideas. And then the phase from the 50s onwards is the phase of implementation about which we actually have a lot of literature. <coughs> the best way to understand these overlaps would perhaps be to move away from either a universal or a historically contingent way and look at the sets of practices that emerged in India from the second decade of the 20th centuries. These practices, I argue, came to be understood in both official and popular discourses as planning or a planned economic agenda for governments. Looking at what the various practices proposed, implemented and failed might give us clues to understanding what planning meant for those that experimented with it, drafted it and then tried to apply it to the ground realities. There is much that the existing literature miss, missed out in its definition of planning as technocratic governance. By turning to the smaller voices in the 1930s, therefore, allows me to raise a few specific questions. What is the relation between planning and governance? How did planning emerge as a simple norm of a particular form of liberal democratic governance in the middle decades of the 20th century? In a way, this paper sort of responds to the existing literature on planning, which in my understanding has sometimes conflated planning with governance or used planning as synonymous to governance. Therefore, the existing scholarship has also sought to see the failure of India, independent India's planning vision at many sides. The elitism of planning, its technocratic technocracy, its fabled political stance, the multiple externalities that were not taken into account. <coughs> Planners, planning was blamed for its failure to properly imagine resource allocation in a decolonizing economy. In fact, in 1986, um, after two decades of planning had failed, there was a very big conference and there the, the actually one of the conclusions that they came to is can democratic governance through planning and resource allocation be a single project or are, are these competing forces that will always make planning fail. Uh, so in trying to disentangle the question of planning and governance and planning governance and politics, the paper does not necessarily wish to reopen the debates around failure of India's planning, but I guess I somehow do it. Thus, instead of asking why planning failed or what its consequences were, let us engage with the following set of questions. What were the various phenomena, microphenomena, ideas, visions, discussions and fears that emerged in the early experimental stage as intelligible manifestations of planning? How did the science of planning emerge against these various fears that were seen to 
uh, dog the conversation around planning. They seek to organize the economy and the government of life in India. Once we do that, we see the question of planning and the political question of governing India always converge at the site of the economy in the 20th century. So, uh, for this, so I said, as I said, I'm talk, thinking in terms of three phases of looking at planning. But for this talk, I focus on the 1930s phase, but primarily on a document that was produced, uh, was called the Notes on India's Economic Policy in 1930. Uh, this was produced by George Schuster, which some of you may know was uh, part of the, um, uh, he was the advisory to the colonial, eco uh, colonial economic advisory, played an important role in Sudan's finance ministry and was also involved in the uh, Africa research uh, survey. Was it the Africa research survey that Helen Tilly writes, writes about in her book? So he was, he was very involved in these questions. So, and he was, he drafted the note on economic policy, he was brought in to India as, uh, into the finance department of the Vice Regal's um, office. So placing this note within its history helps us understand two things. Look at the proposals and the solutions in the note as a set of responses to the contemporary historical pro contemporary problems that the colonial officials were scared of, and also to see the afterlife of the responses, uh, which helps us, I think, understand the nature and shape of governance that was about to emerge in post-colonial India. One which may try, but very unsuccessfully tried unsuccessfully to keep the politicization of the economic question at bay. And I think the seeds of understanding the relation between politicizing the economic question or the crisis of the economic question, one has to move back to these, this moment. So Schuster, as I said, held a, uh, held a position of the, in the finance department. And um, uh, so he was saying that there was a plan-conscious economic agenda for governance taking shape across the world due to the Great Depression in the early 20th century. So he consulted quite a few reports and tried to see how can he develop a Indian version of planning, how can he Indianize planning for the British Empire. So he looked at the Economic Advisory Council of India, the Soviet Planning Committees, the Bruce Committee in Australia, the National Council, Economic Council in France, the Economic Council, the Weimar Economic Councils in Germany, the National Council of Corporations in Italy, the Economic Committee and Institute for Economic Research in Poland, which was actually felt closer to what the Indian experiment would be, and the Committee of Economic Change in the United States. The reports and the drafts of these committees served as a testing ground to propose an Indian planning venture, one that could respond to the colonial situation and, and this was one of the most important discussion of the Economic Advisory Council was informs India's divisive discussion around economy, which according to Schuster and other members of the commission were carried out in an atmosphere of political bias outside <clears throat> the evidentiary regime. As some civil servants in the British Raj pointed out in the 1930s, economic discussions in India were animated by question of politics, provincial particularism, aspirations to power rather than economic scientificity. And this for me is interesting what they perhaps mean by that. For these colonial officials, one of the three main tasks of the EAC, the Economic Advisory Council, was to offer a conduit to bring about economic literacy so that economic governance as they understood it would become a, would not become a site of contentious politics. Thus the idea and need for planning which was initially articulated among the colonial officials in the subcontinent was to be an economic exercise that would maintain the status quo of the ruling elites, uh, both Indian and the British Raj, and also in, in a way legitimize the Raj. This plan died before it was born. 
Why the plan failed is perhaps not as important since the collapse of the plan and its very breakdown. We can see uh, in the collapse of the plan, we can see the very early experiments with planning and how some seeds of economy and politics were being planted in the Indian soil. Even the British efforts at planning in India had failed planning as a developmental discourse continued to strengthen the bureaucracy and the state machinery in India. However, it would be wrong to think Schuster was the first person to talk about planning. When the Indian economic nationalism that began at the close of the 19th century, the writings of Dadavai Navroji, Arsidat, and Ranade had been, began pointing their failures of colonial governance pertaining to economy. Leads for a vision of planned economy for independent India. This would be premised upon correcting the harms of colonialism and bringing about material progress through scientific planning and industrialization. In 1934, a few years after Schuster's plan, Vishwishwara already says, says that industrialization would be the way forward for India. And this was also a period when, as I said, like there was the interwar slump going on, there was the liquidity crisis of the empire, the, there was a change switch away from the gold standard, which actually created a, a price, um, the exchange, uh, unfavorable exchange rates for Indian businesses. So public opinion in India was already galvanized against the colonial government uh, along um, uh, on, on, on the economic situation. And it was also around this time that they were beginning to draft the Government of India Act, which would be passed in 1935, which would give a lot of power to uh, political autonomy to the provincial governments, but also would introduce Indians into representative governance and uh, decision-making bodies. So, the, it's a, at this period, Schuster is kind of proposing the advisory council, and he is saying there's a growing acceptance among the Indian public of the importance of economic question and a growing demand first that the government should frame and pursue a constructive economic policy. And second, the unofficials, which he, by which he means, I'll explain what uh, the non-official sector, should have a share in framing it. The council was mandated to create public opinion about the economy, which at the moment in India was uh, carried out in a climate of political bias. Then Schuster goes on to say the war has upset the ordinary processes of economic life, created forces and oscillations of an artificial and unprecedented kind, which have forced governments to intervene and give a lead to the concerted national effort which is required to cope with these conditions. The emergence of economic nationalism within this context at a time when economy was work, economic work was increasingly bifurcated into multiple units was what Schuster complained, and, and which Schuster complained was not talking to one another, threatened to aggravate the Indian situation. So according to him, he said the land uh, department, the trade department, the railway department, the education department needed to be talking to one another, and they were not. He proposed the Economic Advisory Council as something that would, to quote, cover the entire field of economic work of the government, which I think ought always to be regarded as a single connected whole. The economic work of the government was becoming granular and siloed at a time when anti-colonial nationalists were vociferously beginning to reimagine British India as a different kind of economic state space. As historian Manubaswamy's work has elaborated, a sustained articulation of nationalism crystallized around the notion of a territorially delimited economic collective, a national economy during the 70s and 80s. She shows how the abstraction and transportability of the idea of national economy was based on global economic standardizations that began in the final two decades of the 19th century and the emergence of a particular form of economic nationalism. Indeed, the writings of some of the early nationalists and Swarajists, which was a first sustained critic of both 
nationalism and classical political economy, we see the nation, territory and economy become interlinked. Uh, so, uh, Naoroji, Dat, Ranade are talking about how India's colon dependent colonial economy came out of global processes of both integration and differentiation. What this meant for them was that the place, like, that, that for a place like India, ideas from classical po political economy, uh, classical economic theory as abstraction would not work since the natural laws of economy were not at work in India, which had not, which was nothing but a plantation for the production of raw materials for Britain. And this later became, of course, the bedrock from the famous drain of wealth theory that shaped the spirit of Indian nationalism. So what Schuster is actually locating is there's two levels of artificial artificial externalities being introduced into the economy. One is the colonial economy, next as what the wartime restrictions have done. The answer, but the answer according to Naoji, Dutt, and Ranade and other economists like G. V. Joshi, Kale, and Subramania was to envision a developmentalist plan. However, this plan had to eschew the individualism of classical political economy. They too wanted to Indianize economic development quite differently from Schuster, uh, as we will see later. In fact, in Goswami's work, the nationalists in colonial India attempted to find a space which they indicate, uh, which they indicated as the uh, find a space between the excessive abstraction of classical political economy and the self-serving materialism of colonial economic policy. So, what Ranade says to cite Ranade. <coughs> And this is important. National well-being does not consist only in the creation of the highest quantity of wealth, measured in exchange value, independently of all variety of quality in the wealth, but in the full and many-sided development of productive powers. The nation's economic education is of far more importance than the present gain of its individual members as represented by the quantity of wealth measured by its value in exchange. The function of the state is to help those influences which secure national progress through several stages of growth. So later we'll see Schuster will also make a claim for economic education for very different purposes. But what we have here is a very early articulation of the stages development for India. And uh, of course, they are reading a lot of uh, a lot of material from the Russian experiment. And uh, Schuster over and over stresses the officials in the government of India and the finance department to familiarize themselves with the Russian experiment because he said there is a tendency for the advanced youth to look towards Russia as an example and a guide and we cannot let that happen in India. That would be disastrous because of course they are convinced that the Russian experiment has, has, will, will fail and uh, although, um, and this is what they say, although India looks at it as a, as a Asiatic kind of, as a possible Asiatic aware industrial uh, uh, planning venture that won't work in India or Russia. The fear of Russia made Schuster and other fail to notice the fact that some of the early thinkers on planning and development made a clear rejection of the idea of measuring progress and well-being based on wealth. Thus, even while Ranade and others might have been writing about the limits of measure, that will surely get lost in the din of the bureaucrats. Indeed, as we will see, one of the goals, the only successful one of the failed Economic Advisory Council was to strengthen the Statistical Inquiry Committee so that as uh, Schuster pointed out, statistical indices measuring wealth and output could emerge as a site of economic decision-making for governance, eschew the politicized nature of Indian economic thinking. Later, as we know, the famous statistician P.C. Mohananovich became the architect of India's five-year plan, and the National Planning Commission and the Indian Statistical Institution have a very intertwined history. Uh, Indian public opinion was also, let's point out, a homogeneous group. There were many voices. Thus, what Schuster meant by Indian public opinion or the unofficials 
were the two groups. One, the Swarajis or the nationalists that I have been talking about. The other was the vernacular capitalists, who at that time were a growing body shaping public opinion and they played a key role in forming debates around planning in, and developmental politics. So from this period, like while a lot of us are very sad about how important business houses have increasingly become for our new government or has been since the 1980s that there is a long history of business houses shaping Indian policies for a long, long time and we perhaps need more robust histories of that. However, unlike the Swarajist or the nationalist like Rana Deidat that I was pointing out, it is difficult to pinpoint the economic vision of the vernacular capitalists. There's a lot of, the literature is very rich, there are a lot of debates, some say these guys, these uh, vernacular capitalists were um, actually uh, nationalistic businessmen and nationalism was their main, main focus, of course that literature has now been debunked. New literature shows that although it was not a level playing field for the vernacular capitalists, they were trying to make the best, maximize their profit within the where they were racially discriminating policies. They were um, they were tariff. Um, they were uh, yeah. They were free market policies. There was cartel control and the British control the mainly lucrative market of import, the jute and cotton, whereas the Indian businesses were confined to the domestic market of paper and sugar. And later, I guess um, steel will come in. So, <clears throat> anyways, what we need, uh, what we understand is during this period. Um, uh, the, the Indian uh, working class movement, uh, labor unrest, the nationalists, they were all speaking in one voice and the Indian vernacular capitalists were joining the movement for the first time in, in the questions when there was a question of economic upliftment was one of the rallying cries and Congress was also moving away from, a, from this stance of mass movement and agitation towards having more and more representative politics or electoral politics and uh, the Indian businesses were becoming important players in this Field. So what Schuster is saying that we cannot ignore them, although everyone else wants to ignore them, because the government or the Economic Advisory Council was tasked to develop some means for cooperating with the unofficial opinion, so the government may not only learn and get advice from those who are really engaged in economic activities in the country, but also carry out public opinion to some extent with its action. So let us, what I'll do is I'll now turn to some parts of this uh, uh, report and then Arthur uh, Salter's visit following the report to tease out some of the recommendations that remained and then I'll try to conclude. So as a response to this growing concern, Schuster, like his counterparts in Britain, realized that political problems required continued state intervention. But much like the prior decade, the solution had to be economic one. One that would go beyond mere budgetary allocation and would be more holistic. And this is something and the other colonial officials will fight about because they'll continue to say we do not treat the economy as only a budgetary concern, a concern of remittance. And Schuster will say yes, you have failed to have a holistic conversation and understand economy as a site of decision making. The question of, of course, who was an expert and what constituted expertise will remain a troubled one throughout India. But what we see by reading the report is the distinction between political governance, which needed to learn from economic expert expertise, instantiated at the inception of the planning program would sow the seeds of its later disintegration uh, in the post-colonial moment. As proposed, the council in India had to be structured around the British Economic Advisory Council formed by the second Labour government in the 1930, which also was not a very long-lived affair, but did uh, become the uh, uh, 
the predecessor of the what I believe is the finance economic department of the cabinet. Around this time in Britain, the conversations were there was a heated discussion going on about standardization of economic categories, rationalization in the name of producing a managed economy, a system of protection, tariff truces, which uh, were being hotly debated. It was around this time Schuster issues a following complaint about India, a slightly racially charged complaint. He says all economic discussion in India is conducted not with scientific authority or on the basis of reliable statistics and impartial evidence, but in an atmosphere of political violence. So if Ranadi was pointing out to the limits of metric, Schuster was bemoaning not the lack of statistics, but its failure to become a useful site for informing public opinion. To summarize briefly, the EAC briefly, Schuster conducted a survey spoke to various provincial and central level state administrators, the Swarajis, directors of various chambers of commerce, both European and Indian, and came up with a three-pronged proposal. Better government machinery not siloed to undertake economic work up in the country. Better cooperation between institutes gathering scientific data and institutes administering them. And, and, and also to develop means and methods to galvanize public opinion which could not only yield information, but if deployed tactically, could strengthen the reach. Schuster's plan was not necessarily met with kindness by the other colonialist issues. Indeed, following Schuster's notes, the Viceroy decided to organize an economic conference and contacted the various provincial governors in India. And he also invited Arthur Salter, who was at that time heading the um, economic department of the League of Nations. The purpose was to integrate for the first time non-official sections which would include members of the Indian National Congress, members of the FICCI, which is the Indian Federation of Chambers of Commerce, as well as, um, as, well as the provincial governors into economic policy making, which would become a palliative agent to the political volatility at that time, which would hopefully steer public opinion about economics and the service of legitimizing the culture. However, the provincial governors threatened by the idea of Indian Congress involvement wrote back with mixed responses. For instance, Montague Butler, governor of central provinces, vehemently opposed the involvement of non-officials, especially members of the Congress, saying, economics in India tended to be treated politically, and such a plan could only become a politically divisive tool in the hands of nationalist readers and therefore circumscribe British authority for. After much debate, Schuster was finally able to organize the conference in a much reduced scope, involving only governing officials at that time, with the aim to improve bureaucratic interventions in pre-conflict The major opposition that Schuster faced from the British finance officials and provincial governors was premised on a desire to separate commissions, bodies and external experts generating economic information from the political power and authority to plan. George Rainey, the then Undersecretary to the Government of India, was one of the most vocal uh, opponents. Unlike Schuster, who felt the need to understand Indian public opinion better and Use that as a site of information. He said he understood the main, to quote, the main plans of economic policy which are find at present finds favor with Indian commercial opinion and Indian politicians. They are better exchange rate, full body, full body protection policy, and a self-sufficient India. Of course, for instance, someone like G.D. Bella, who was initially one of the invitees to the conference, wanted uh, and he was an industrialist, wanted full body protection policies, but. Other economists and politicians like Shanmukhan Chetty, who was in close conversation with uh, Schuster and read his plans and offered uh, feedback, and along with Mohammad Ali Jinnah, who was a Swarajist at that time and would later go on to become the Prime Minister of Independent Pakistan, both of them said this is a right step in the right direction. 
for developing India's economy, what what uh, Shuster was not paying attention to was the country had vast resources which needed to be developed towards nation building and not towards the empire, and that is what they wanted. The enthusiasm and directions suggested by the unofficials what what the colonial officials feel. J. A. Goodhead, the Trade Commission, wrote his dissent to the document that what was wanted was not direct integration and participation of non-officials into the Raj. Instead, he desired the following, to quote, presentation of statistics already compliant, the deductions to be drawn from the statistics and an explanation of what the government does in various directions in a readily, readily readable form in the current newspaper. So just like the, when they moved on to look at the uh, economic institution in Poland and they said there needs to be a body of academic uh, economics, but they shouldn't be involved in governance. It's always dangerous to get academic economists into governance. Very skeptical, but they said they need to generate, they need to be given a statistical data. And they should process it and produce it, produce these numbers as material out of which public policy can be made. And it is their task to produce this in, in newspapers, journals, and gazettes in a way that they can be trusted in those numbers because there are these numbers and statistics because the statistical department of the empire is very robust. But Schuster's complaint was no one was using it to do anything, it was just being gathered. So, uh, this uh, brings me to the. Um, uh, so, then George Rainey, um, uh, uh, George Rainey, who was very, very, like, as I pointed out, one of the most vocal critics, said, uh, What we need is basically fact finding committees uh, under this, and we cannot enter into this. So, finally, Salter was actually brought in for the conference in this one. He did uh, go to all the provincial, um, all the provinces, uh, talk to people, and he also produced a report, uh, which again he began with the enthusiasm of getting uh, expert economists and uh, unofficials involved. But ultimately, he said that uh, what we need is not um, data gathering, um, um, data generating bodies, because enough data is being generated in the British Empire or Indian Empire. What we need is a body that can actually um, process this data or, or, or improve the statistical and commercial intelligence of the country and use it, as, as I said, to uh, uh, channelize public opinion. And ultimately, the economic advisory failed, but its main goal seems if we look at the 69 page report, of which at least 50 pages or 40 pages is devoted to. See, what do we do with Indian public opinion, how we train it, and how can we use statistics to train Indian public opinion? Although there are, um, so, what I will end, I will not go into more details about the Congress's drafting and all of that, but I will end by saying very quickly, I have five, ten more minutes. Yeah. I will end by saying very quickly about, uh, close the discussion on the uh, Economic Council by saying, ultimately in independent India, when the planning commissions failed, it was not the fear of politicizing the economic question, but the finance minister actually shot back to the cabinet and the National Planning Commission, which was headed by mostly trained bureaucrats and uh, statisticians from the Institute of Indian Institute of Statistics, by saying this National Planning Commission is a hermetically sealed department which does not get the question of the politics of economic question. So what we see is a complete overturning of this whole question, but somehow they always remain separate throughout India. Either it is the fear of politicizing economic question or, or it is that bureaucrats and technocrats do not get the politics of the economic question. So even Nehru, uh, when he was getting a slightly disillusioned in his late age with planning, 
he said there is a strong impulse to reformulate all kinds of political questions from hindu castes in india to food shortages across asia into narrow economic questions suggesting technical solutions so this then brings me to my conclusion and this is the more tentative part is what i'm saying is what is the relation exactly between planning and governance or is it actually synonymous and am i misreading it so you know i attempted to understand planning as an object of governance in crisis uh then to offer my small intervention into the history of planning uh, in india i propose that india's planning failed not because of its technocratic nature or elitism but because it sought to develop a post political vision one that remained elusive from the start it is not like scholars have ignored this aspect indeed for india the politicization of the economic question hypostatized into two distinct sides uh for the sake of clarity i'm calling the claims making side and there's a lot of literature on that and the other i'm calling the distributive side the claims making side by the population the economic question was politicized uh, through movements of labor rights land rights basic income social welfare all of which launched india's planning venture there's a low robust literature about it and they also theorize that how the claims making side cannot be looked at simply because it is completely fractured by caste class gender race core fed periphery federal and state uh, resource allocation questions the tilling of politicization that i tried to look at was the question the distributive side by this i mean how the economy or the government of economy emerged as a political question within the realm of high politics and colonial theories if the distinction between the sides were at least there was an attempt to keep it clear by the 1940s uh, or later in the post independent in that they were no more clear and the constant leakages into one another and they also put pressure into one another and this leakage between these two sides is perhaps what defines a specific nature of democratic patronage electoral politics political landscape of india which precisely the colonial officials and bureaucrats understood to have to be central to planning if they had to do a planned economy and because they were terrified to let it enter they actually uh, did away with the plan thus india in some ways perhaps emerges as a case study as one of the spaces where centralized planning and the triumvirate of patronage politics patronage democratic politics sought and failed to reside side by side so with this i try to end i do not necessarily have a definition of planning but what it did in india is i feel created a site the space of the governed and what is governable and this is and these two kept shifting in the early debates and the later planning debates of which there is a much longer and larger history so i'll end by saying so instead of looking at uh, why planning failed or what's happening maybe we need to see at what spaces the question of planning for an economic with the economic agenda and the question of governance sort of kept coming up hot thank you Thank you very much for your talk. When the Indian Civil Service was set up, unlike the British, it's funny, isn't it? The British set up a, a meritocratic civil service, yeah. and the British civil service, yeah. you call it, that was basically sinecure, as I understand it. Yeah. And I was wondering, uh, given that it's a meritocratic, what were the sort of um, backgrounds of the people in the Indian Civil Service yeah. who were involved in planning were there sort of too many economists as distinct from economic historians mm. or did they engage uh, people say from some of the international corporations from their planning departments uh, you know from private sector mm. 
Do you have any information at all on the background of the personnel who are in, in, what in, the, in, in planning? In the post-independent period. Yes, yes, yeah. that's right, yes, yes. So it's very interesting. I believe um, Mohalanovich was, was not... And correct me if I'm wrong. He was he was a mathematician. Uh, he was yes. uh, and, and a statistician, uh, yeah. and he became the uh, frame. He framed the planning. But he from uh, in, when I was present the last time, he actually project pointed out he was actually doing much more like um, anthropometric statistics, and he was trying to do that sort of a development and went into economical like statistics the way we know it now in India. Uh, so that he, he was one person. He was not a civil servant per se. And that's and that's the interesting debate that like who should be later when Matha, the finance minister, who basically rings the death knell of the National Planning Commission or plan, planning the five year plans in some ways. We do have our five year budgets around them. But um, he basically says that the civil servants do not understand Necessarily, they are not representative, they are not elected government officials, they are not the voice of the people, and they shouldn't be planning the economy. But the back, to talk about the background, a lot of the people um, uh, in the early planning, they were in, the, I believe, in the first planning, there was involvement of MIT economists who, uh, who were actually trying to have a say in that. Uh, I think after the first five year plan, they established Indian institute, uh, technical institutions, the IITs. There was also involvement of by the second plan, I believe they were looking at Germany and uh, and this is not like I only know this from secondary literature and of course Russia was a very very big uh, big influence in all of this. So they were looking at experimenting, but the idea always remained about how to make uh, it had to be a socialist plan for Nehru. Although there are debates of what form of socialism that was, uh, and it also had to be. When, when did the Russians become involved? Russian planners become involved? Russian planners were not necessarily involved. I, I don't know, but Would Russian statisticians were very involved. They, they, they were coming to India from the 60s onwards, and they were like, and the idea, there was a lot, uh, they were looking at the Russian uh, heavy industries and the mm -hmm. and also the East German heavy industry, heavy industrial. Uh, Situation to develop, like the second five year plan was supposed to be more industrialization. They were looking at those uh, planners, but uh, that would be 60s. Question or comment? Mm. Really, really interesting, Devjani. And um, what, so having looked at the 1920s, the mm. similar kinds of questions coming up. Mm. And I think, you know, the way in which you talk about planning at the end, about sort of creating this, this question of the governed and, 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 and governable. Mm. Um, I mean, I think that devolution has plays a critical role in this. And of course, mm. it begins, I think, with the 1919 Government of India Act, mm. where one of the major things that's being discussed is who's going to get control over the budget. Mm. So with diarchy, actually, mm. there's a big question about where budgetary responsibility mm. lies. And I think that this is part of a longer story that stretches mm. from 1919 through mm. to 1947 mm. and also involves things like the independence of the Bank of India mm. here too mm. um, and, and discussions about currency reform, mm. after, which used to be massively involved with, of yeah. course, in, in India. Mm. Um, but this construction, as you say, and you put mm. very nicely, you know, the economy is scientific. And mm. so lots of the guys mm. I'm looking at in the 1920s mm. are dismissed as being too political. Mm. And of course, um, this, this question about kind of um, that that marking of the economy as scientific comes hand in hand with with that threat of devolution, mm. um, and I think sort of where I, I don't I know much less about where the budgetary mm. who gets to you know 
So who gets to sort of have a say in budget mm. decisions is hugely problematic in 1919. And I don't know enough about how it's devolved mm. with provincial mm. autonomy. I mean, mm. I think the provincial autonomy, one of the things that sort of mm. the intention there is to actually just take Indian decision making mm. out of the budgetary concerns exactly. yeah. uh, much, much more coherently. Mm. But there is, yeah, there's a, it goes back even further, I'd say, to the 1920s. That's, that's, that's really, really helpful because, and it's very interesting because the budgetary concerns again crop up when the finance ministry and the National Planning Commissions are fighting over it because it feels like while you're getting elected into the into your office on budgetary promises to your electoral, the planning, you cannot do anything unless the Planning Commission gives you the funds. So that becomes an issue. But what I think, and I think this is something I need to tease out, uh, Schuster is very upset about why economic discussions in India are either the unofficials mm-hmm. doing it in this political nature and the official, like the colonial officials are doing it is constricted to the budgetary questions mm-hmm. and cannot mm-hmm. think beyond their own little budgets and beyond fighting over various kinds of uh, resource distribution. And that is what I'm, he's saying we need to have a much, yeah, and therefore he says it, it's becoming siloed into mm-hmm. various departments. So maybe there's a much longer story I need to trace carefully between economy, the scientific space and how that is Coming across in the budgetary. I think the kind of the fiscal reorganization yeah. of the state in this yeah. period. Yeah. Yeah. What I was interested in was all time thinking, well, what do they mean by planning here? Because mm-hmm. a lot of it seems to be about the government budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're looking to see between the claim sign and the mission sign. And that again is, well, who gets to get bits? Mm-hmm. Um, and who is due bits and who gets this? But the whole Soviet plan is, mm-hmm. you know, this whole heavy industry, yeah. there are stages of growth yeah. you have to go through. So it's not clear to me what sense of planning failed. Mm. It's not clear like, which kind of planning we're talking about. Like, yeah. We're talking about the budget planning, mm. which I can imagine obviously failed. <laughs> we're talking about the planning, which is claims based versus distribution based. Mm. Or we're thinking about mm. this more economic visionary. We want to be this kind of economy, and this is how we get there, mm. which is a really different from budget. Mm. The budget has to fit with that, but mm. if you don't have that kind of economic side, mm. economic future mm. side, mm. so mm. the sense of which planning fails. I'm just wondering if you could tell us about the sense of which you're talking about planning failing, given that planning can be so many things. Well, at least these three. Yeah, yeah. In the way you talked about it. No, this is helpful. I think this is how I can clarify what I'm saying. No, so I, 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 I get to it. So, what Schuster and Pete, one of the questions they say is like the Economic Advisory Council in England, why it was short lived, had only one government to answer to. British. Whereas the question is who do we answer to if we are planning, making a plan, if you're planning an economy, who does the Economic Advisory Council answer to? Are we working for the Indians? Are we working for in response to the galvanized public opinion against us or but ultimately we work for the British government. So who are we answering to? That was one major question. So I think the people like Woodhead, uh, Rainey, Butler and all the other people who comes into the discussion, they are concerned about how much budget they will get. They are that, that is one concern and they are saying we cannot bring in the Congress people because they are going to take over and they are going to decide what we do with our departments. They are not happy. So it, so in the early phase the, or the experiment phase that I am calling the 1930s, it is very much about um, who gets to decide what happens with the money, who gets to decide what gets remitted, what gets uh, input, what sort of, what we are measuring also, what sort of statistical indices we want, what do we do with it. 
and ultimately therefore they decide that they cannot plan for India because they don't know who they are planning for. Because how do they actually do a planning for the British government? And when Indian political economic questions are so divisive and it's so difficult. So they decided best, best not to touch but best to create an organization that would generate information that would be published in a digestible form to show the economy is doing well and the government is actually framing its question in economic terms beyond pure budgetary terms. But this will of course completely shift by the time we go to the um, uh, independent moment. And there the economic vision is very much of self-sufficiency. And that is exactly that we fail with Indira Gandhi's government when we have the famines and they have to take aid. So one of the, like one, a lot of people will say there is one kind of failure when India has to turn for foreign aid. And India fails to become the self-sufficient economy. So that is one. There are many reasons. Like it's, it's a very contested. Many elitism is one. Uh, the uh, the color the, in the like as I say the distributive stuff. Like at least among the officials, they're saying like these two are two different kinds of departments. Because we are like the finance ministry is supposed to have the budget, and not the planners are not supposed. To, they they don't have a sense of the budget. They do not have a sense of what the people of the nation wants. And of course the questions of Resource allocation, the land uh, redistribution completely failed in India. So various kinds of things that were set up in the planning commissions, all of those failed. So there were like minor failures and the larger failure of the vision. Both of them happened. So I guess it's, it's yeah, I don't know if I answered it, but I think there are many failures. There is perhaps not one failure we're talking about here. And I think that's something I need to clarify. Different points. Yeah. And they were they all failing. Sense of having to be a different country, different you know, once yeah. you've got this sense of yeah. what kind mm. of money do you want to be? Was there a consensus? No, that's a that's a yeah, that's a big question. There was no consensus. There were many, many, many ideas. There were and there was the Congress at that time, at the time of independence, was like considered of many people. There were the Gandhians who had a very different economic vision. Which, of course, Nehru, at, after independence, completely splits from Gandhi's vision was... So they keep this idea of self-sufficiency, but Gandhi's idea of self-sufficiency was perhaps much more in tune with what I'm reading from Ranade's ideas of, of a different kind of measure, a different equation of understanding well-being, which doesn't have to be wealth and GDP and all of that. Nehru's vision is quite different, but way more technocratic. He wants mm -hmm. to bring in people from his university circuits and de develop various kinds of ideas. He wants, uh, he develops uh, Chandigarh and uh, two, two Indian cities that are going to be planned cities of the future of India is to look like that. He believes in dams. He wants to bring dams and he says dams are going to be the new temples of India. So there is that. There are also lots of critique of uh, Nehru's plan. A lot of people who are doing much more ground level work of the Congress because the Congress very soon, the moment Congress moves away in the 1930s from mass agitation towards much more electoral politics, it also starts losing its uh, electoral base or losing contact with its electoral base and the people who are within the Congress or the cadres who are much more closer to the uh, agrarian population, the uh, working classes, they were actually saying this planning is not for us. So th there was that. Then each planning brought in its own set of, each five-year plan brought in its own set of critiques. So there was never a consensus of what that would be. One, like the empty word that remains constant is the question of self-sufficiency. But what Gandhi means by it and what Nehru means by it are completely different things, one could say.
Thank you. Um, there's so much here. I have many questions, but I'm going to ask yeah. one and maybe a comment as well. Okay. It's, it's something which which uh, maybe already alluded to yeah. uh, in terms of what planning. Yeah. I think might uh, be slightly different in the sense that, like for instance, Vishweshwarya, when you start talking about planning, you're talking about deconstruction. So by the time Nehru is talking about it, he yeah. means something else. Completely. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the word development starts coming in. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, yeah. trying to disentangle mm-hmm. what these different ways mm-hmm. of planning yeah. is uh, probably might be very important. Mm-hmm. Particularly because, as Nehru sometimes, or later on, mm-hmm. there was, a, there was a, a difference of opinion by the time mm-hmm. to the national planning uh, communities. Yeah. Uh, and Nehru yeah, yeah. uh, and therefore, in the sense that you know, uh, to what, to what are the limits of planning, you know, for, for which for people like Vishweshwarya, it, it, it was planning for industrialization, mm. whereas for people like Nehru, it was planning for anything else. Yeah. Uh, mm. So, so that might be an important way, of, maybe, mm. uh, of looking at it. Mm. And that brings me to the the national planning committee itself, because mm. this is one space where. Mm. Uh, the the capitalists, the vernacular capitalism, mm. the villas, yeah. uh, uh, are are talking to the to the nationalists. Mm. Uh, mm. So the, the makeup of the national planning community mm. is an interesting because mm. I don't think anyone's looked at it. That's true. Uh, uh, so so those are two comments, but I think the question is something that we talked about in terms of set of practices, mm. and I wonder whether you can say a little more about it in the sense mm. that. The practices you mm. were saying, uh, I mean, in mm. terms of what Schuster was saying, mm. uh, and maybe some of those other contemporaries mm. about setting up uh, statistical mm. agencies, you know, data gathering, mm. coding, you know, it just sort of continues that period mm. of coding classification. But I wonder whether there's something else. Mm. So in the U, in the United Provinces, mm. the uh, provincial government mm. set, actually does set up mm. uh, an economic planning. Inquiry, yeah. that is very different from the national level. Exactly. I wonder whether whether these mm. set of practices are are different at different levels. Mm. Uh, so at the level of of what where Schuster is, mm. is operating, mm. the set of practices are slightly different from mm. from at the provincial levels. Because mm. that document, that economic plan of the yeah, is it's very interesting. It's very very bare. Yes. It, it's sort of like a wish list. Yeah. But it has a an interesting uh, element of uh, trying to sort of license the um, uh, the architectural producer who yes. can sell what. Exactly. So there's almost a sort of controlling mechanism mm-hmm. there. Um, mm-hmm. So again, I'm maybe I'm, I'm sort of wondering if you can say a little bit more about the kind of practices you're thinking. No, this is this is very helpful. I I never thought of the the NPC. Looking at the makeup of the NPC and see what sort of characters are coming in, and after the disappearance of the NPC, what happens to this? Where, where do they find their lobbying spaces? Would be interesting. So thank you so much. Uh, I'll look into that. So the sort of practice is very interesting. So Schuster is also uh, very excited about what Punjab is doing because Punjab has its own banking inquiry committee, its agrarian um, credit bank, credit banking agrarian uh, reform committee. So Schuster thinks these are the kind of committees. And he's saying, he thinks the Punjab experiment is actually a success. And he wants that to be replicated, which is, which is surprising that we would think that replicated. He feels, and it's a success because they are talking to one another. 
for him it becomes important. He says, what if we did that with other kinds of provincial committees? So that is one one kind, like one set of practices. What I think, like what, what I really interested doing is trying to get these various. Like, he feels there has to be a mechanism through which various bodies will talk to one another, and that talking to one another has to be done by the use of statistics, by the use of like evidences within economies in a scientific manner. And once that happens, then it can actually uh, direct. Public opinion in India, which is so contentious, because he's saying as long as that remains contentious, we cannot do anything. So that, for me, that is where, like, he, he has these broad ideas of trying to do some plan, yet he can't because this is the situation within which he finds himself, and the questions of the economy feels like distributed over there. Perhaps that's him. Uh, you mentioned Poland, and I'm wondering whether these guys are already like what. ियंडिंग creation of facts in these spaces how are they understanding how one one like what what will the statistical project or the field project in these two spaces would be for shuster and i would like to see how what sort of like while he's drawing from uk what he's also drawing from this thing because this is happening at the same time thank you very much uh, for that i one thing slide that um i got taken that by when you was in your conclusion you said um that One perhaps we should judge planning not so much by the role of elites, but more by the uh, the questioning of the politicisation of the economic policies. Mm. Um, and I'm wondering how synonymous of how the youth in those two are just yeah. synonymous with each other, because mm. India especially is sort of neat, but politicisation of economic mm. policy, particularly agriculture, for mm. example, is mm. I mean really been a very long time. Mm. Um, so I'm wondering whether The ideas of planning mm. change mm. depending on whose vested interests became more important mm. over time. Mm. Um, obviously, independence marks a very important transition mm. in that period. Yeah. Um, in fact, you know, Taylor Sheldon's book is partly about debunking mm. the myths about Nehru, so talking about how yeah. socialist was Nehru himself. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, I wonder whether part of what you're saying goes in line with the argument about elite interests mm. and planning. And whether they actually go hand in hand rather than separately. Yeah. No, so I should like put a caveat. I don't mean to say we shouldn't call in their no, adventure no, yeah. elitists. What I'm saying by only looking at like the technocratic nature. If you look at the literature that talks about why planning failed, it's like the technocratic nature and these guys could not take into account externalities within the economy. Therefore, by just looking into that, are we missing out other 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 things that we are missing out? Like if technocratic, the technocratic critique frames all our understanding of planning. What are we missing out? And that's why I say. I think what is much more interesting in India is precisely what is the fear of politicizing the economic question. Why do we think the economic question should be anything but political? Yeah. And from the very beginning, that is the fear. Right. Instead of saying okay, like there is a way to work with it, is always it is that fear. And like the and it is exactly again Mathai when Mathai says that the NPC is doesn't understand the politics of the economic question. It is 
it is clearly that there is something going on and that says much more about Indian economy and how, uh, how Indian politics function because it is precisely because the economic question is politicized that India can function as a patronage politics but yet we want to like it is a democratic patronage kind of a mix that is very hard to find anywhere else and this is something I in some ways I feel sure people or Lama Shuster, others read very carefully and were scared of. So, but I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. I think one of my questions is also whether we think that that, that the politicized, yeah. it's the politicization itself to yeah. transition to yeah. different forms of politicization. Yeah, mm-hmm. yes. Um, was more mm-hmm. my question throughout, mm-hmm. between from the Nawaji, the Ranade period, mm-hmm. to the rise yeah. of the Marxist discourse in the 50s and 60s, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I find that with that particular discourse, the rise of that discourse yeah. was very interesting. Yeah. Um, in the context yeah. especially. So, whether that then influenced uh, how they thought about planning itself. Or, or, how, or why planning failed. Or rather, why planning failed. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely, definitely. Like the rise of the Marxists in the 50s, 60s, on the question of housing and the Buddha, like, and yeah. the failure of the land distribution. Yeah. And later, I think from the 70s, one can even like look at one of the one of the things that constantly rattles is is the question of uh, minority politics and, yeah, and resource allocation. Yeah. So be it Dalit politics, Muslim politics, yeah, 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 it, 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 it is constantly that. that uh, and so we can just take Schuster's argument and still put it on and, and yeah, see yeah. economics. Like, look at what, what happens when budget happens. In yeah, yeah. One of the, like it's watched much more than uh, cricket in India. Yeah. And that, that says something about the Indian nation state, so, or the electoral politics of India. So, Why is the budget one of the most watched uh, television sure. program? <laughs> it is, it is. Sort of carrying on yeah. with this idea of globalization of, of economics in India. Mm-hmm. I was quite taken by your idea of planning as governments. Mm-hmm. And uh, would you agree that there is an element of uh, colonial legacy to this? Mm-hmm. Because uh, the British state in India mm-hmm. was very much hands off mm-hmm. in the sense that you know, the fiscal policy, monetary policy mm-hmm. is. Uh, is what the state is focusing mm. on, mm. Uh, rather than sort of staying within uh, India. Mm. So uh, that leads to the idea of planning, mm. as the government does planning, and, mm. and, and within India, then the the elite then mm. look at the the arena of planning and mm. the arena for government mm. and and for governments. Mm. So so the competing interests then mm. when they do arise in it, within India. Mm. For uh, to to sort of mm. uh, take part in governance and uh, during this period, mm. it's also the time that they are aware of the fact that independence is imminent. Mm. So that they are themselves, if you like, planning to become the government mm. of of India. Mm. So so they are taking over, if you like, the mm. space of planning. Mm. They are a, a transitioning, mm. if you like, by taking on the planning. Mm. as a colonial residue and to that like, uh, 
it's hard to say that i would say because at that time so many places are so many countries are planning so to say that it is a colonial residue might might be limiting in some ways perhaps it is perhaps it is not because each country is trying to think in terms of planning at that time and develop its own vision of planning and india is very involved very much into seeing how we can develop its planning so and one can say that you know india sits down and writes a constitution also is it a colonial residue we don't we cannot say that like but these are the, of course the way what governance would look like or what democratic governance would look like what we take on as the shape of the governance is and it's an amalgamation from many things and it's very much of course derived from the uh, colonial system that we if you the second question i hear is do you think the elites were becoming forms of neo colonial that they were planning to become the rulers of the nation and yeah there i would actually agree with you they are taking on many of the trappings of the colonial or the colonial rhetoric of governing and just as much as the colonial officials were taking on the rhetoric or political rhetoric of the locals yes. to gain legitimacy these are forms through which you gain one gains legitimacy in a new kind of situation and i think that they are doing very much i have a few comments and and i think it'll end with a question so so it might be more to do with an earlier period that that i study yeah. so i do apologize that i might be pointing out things that that is not necessarily the focus of your paper but mm-hmm. but to start then that you mentioned renade quite mm-hmm. a, a couple of times mm-hmm. i find him very different mm-hmm. to naruji and dat and especially mm-hmm. in the question of what is economics and what is indian economics mm-hmm. renade is obviously the famous for being the founder of of indian indian political economy and he critiqued classical political economy like you you pointed out of course but actually naruji and dat i i find do not um mm-hmm. they're more in this okay classical political economy doesn't apply to india now mm-hmm. but once it's independent it, it will right yeah. so there for example pro universal ideas of yeah. progress whereas renade is is absolutely not mm-hmm. along with other other followers mm-hmm. of him i think um mm-hmm. um ayer and and yoshi for example okay. um that that's the first comment and then secondly that this idea that they weren't using statistics properly mm-hmm. um and that they needed to use them better mm-hmm. i'm i'm just trying to think of two examples there's the material and sorry moral and material progress report mm-hmm. that the british colonization starts publishing which is why naruji starts uh taking the statistics mm-hmm. and calculating his own national accounting and his own um average income national income in the 1860s um so so i'm wondering like what so how can he say they're not being used mm-hmm. and and what what's new in the 1930s that yeah. wasn't be doing done in the late 19th century mm-hmm. um and then last thing so he says that they're, they're politicized the indian economists politicized again i'm going to come from examples in the late 19th century but yes they're nationalist yeah. but they're still doing economics they're still yeah. wanting mm-hmm. to get economic development for india yeah. so if that's not economics to me mm-hmm. i don't know what is mm-hmm. and of course maybe it's a bit like what you what response you had to a question here about mm-hmm. if we only look at economics as nationalistic economics mm. in india are mm. we missing other things exactly. and denying these economists actually a a, a label as political economists mm. which which at least this is what i'm trying to argue in my thesis and no, that's very helpful. so this is what like this is precisely the kind of work that the nationalist economists are doing is which is a threat mm. to that's why they, it is not like that is not the use because for the so this is what's happening They are, they 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 are consider it outside evidentiary status they are saying this is not scientific data this is politics 
what they are doing with statistics, they are doing politics, and what the British are doing is they are doing nothing with the statistics. They are just getting the numbers, publishing it, but they are not trying to use it to count, provide a counterpoint to what is being said by the Indian nationalists or the economic nationalists, as Schuster is calling them. They are saying these guys are politicizing these numbers, and we are not doing anything. We are failing to then respond to this situation. So in some ways, yeah, they are of course using it, and they are using it quite well. One would say. Like, but this is exactly what is what is what both Rainey and Schuster is playing because they, they these guys are reading the numbers politically, mm. and this constantly this is. But they are seeing the bureaucrats, like the not bureaucrats, the the British colonial officials, and failing to use this to inform their policy and develop policy. So once we actually have a put to put the statistics to better use, if the Economic Advisory Council were to be successful. One would be that these would there would be better communication between the various departments. So how the trade department is, what the trade department is producing, and what the trade and they would be talking to one another and producing policy. They wouldn't be siloed. And then someone should be actually like there would be economic research council that instead of people like Rana Day and people like and not just Rana Day or Navaji, but also yeah, at least I know in Bangla there was a lot of vernacular writing on wealth and economy and like. And the way of translating classical political economy, Indianizing it, and these were like both manuals, advisory, but also school textbooks uh, or college textbooks that they are producing at that time, which are all the translations, uh, which are not necessarily direct from word to word verbatim, but Indianizing each of these translations. Um, so they are producing that. This and that is not. We need to be in control of the information that is getting out there. So that's the idea. So they're not doing the national accounts because Lord Curzon yeah. comes up with a national. Income, exactly. average national yeah. income to yeah. combat Naruji's national yeah, income. Exactly. Um, so it is going on the late is, 19th century, yeah. but not in the 1930s. Is, no, so you agree not. with uh, it, it? It is perhaps going on. So that's what I was talking with Eleanor. They're saying it is very patchy the material that is coming, and like, and that is exactly like, and I think that's what she is also in her work looking at this, like the national income accounting and all of that, and. What is it? Is it output? Is it production? So the, there, there is. It is not being produced in the way perhaps it has been produced in England, very consistently, or in the US at that time from the thirties onwards. But this is something I need to look at much more carefully. What's happening with? So yeah, I actually found that very interesting in terms of. I, I do find it interesting how the um, the, the the discussion in the thirties was about the fear of the politicization of the economy. In actual fact. It doesn't seem like politicization to me, it's just a conflict of economic ideology mm. a lot of the time. Yeah. What I find what I find really interesting, maybe this is not uh, no relevance to your papers, but I just find it very, very interesting that it sounds to me like that through the process of the devolution of political power, mm. it's become a vacuum for discussion of economic ideology. And maybe mm. that created the fear of the mm. change in the status quo that perhaps mm. was what the fear was, rather than the fear of the discussion itself. Mm. Yeah, and maybe this is one of the uh, initiatives where we saw conflict of mm. ideology between power centers mm. that may not have existed in such deep mm. intensity prior. I find that quite interesting. Mm. Right, I found your paper very interesting. My question is an LC question, which I also know the answer. Mm. Well, I know Theodore Gregory went to India mm. and spent a lot of time working on people on monetary economics and banking system. I wondered whether he had much effect there, mm. whether if he had effect, it had anything to do with the banking system and monetary structure 
wet clothes on me. This I will have to see. I don't know if I can answer this because I don't know much about what theatre breweries were getting. Don't, don't know. I don't know. I should. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe someone else. I, I do not, I do not know. Thought, my... No, but it's something I should look into. This, my question would be partly answered by the discussion we just had. It was just, for my own clarification, really, mm -hmm. my understanding, you keep mentioning the failure. Mm -hmm. I was thinking, firstly, alerts, take examples of the parents, I don't understand what you mean by that, like electrification, for example, or something like that, because the reason why it sounds silly, but I can't pick out in my head two mm -hmm. arguments, I see. One, what counts as economics in the, in the struggle over the formation of the new states, mm -hmm. which will then determine what that state's going to be, you know, in just the state there. And also, yeah. wider, also global arguments about it's very impossible, and you said it is that they're keen to say no. Yeah. I don't know enough about the capital market assumption at this time. So these two are tangled up. Yeah. I'm trying to, in my mm. mind, I'm just trying to argue, uh, sort of, you're trying to, in those specific sites where yeah. this fight takes place, they, they try to do something specifically on the ground, just fell apart, or mm. their own metric, mm. they didn't mm. hit. Mm. You know, so I guess the one thing that uh, uh, I know from the I believe if I remember correctly from the second plan they do they do fail to meet their projections so that's one thing but but I think the first plan was considered somewhat of a success whereas from the second plan they feel like they're not meeting the metrics so green revolution was considered somewhat of a success. <laughs> but that's only one part where there were jobs and other parts. So, like, so it's 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 a very it's it's a very difficult question. One of the things that like they gave up the idea of planning after a few tries, and that is why it's considered the the planning planning the five year plans that Nehru instituted. And I think this is where I guess I need to tease out all these what I think Nehru was pointing on. What is what Shustra means by planning? What in the forties they are trying to think of what the planning. What India's economic governance will look like, and what the planning commissions per se that take place in the uh, in the post-independence is a very different. So, five-year planning commissions thing. So, one of the uh, things why the planning fail is like because, and this is something even uh, people like Rainey and people are saying, so what works in England won't work because the population is so big. So, how do you imagine like if you want to like in the first plan they were trying to redistribute everything equally. And that didn't quite work out. And they said, okay, let's put everything in one place. So if some someone what water, someone what you uh, fertilizer, we said you cannot do that. So that they take everything and put it in one place. And of course, then we have green revolution in Punjab and the rest of the India is probably not eating as much as they should be eating. So there are all these problems. So initially they were like, okay, let's give these like in the agrarian place there was this kind of distribution. So there's a it's a, it's still much more complex. Whether maybe it didn't fail, fail. maybe there were no other alternatives. Maybe and in the in the nineteen forty that was the only way to do it. It was not like there were three kinds of visions to choose from for a decolonizing nation. And economists or statisticians were going to think about how to develop a new nation. That was the way the like forties was being thought about. So but one of the reasons why people say in, in India planning failed or what this is like they, whether it failed or not, at least we didn't continue with the five year plans. Yeah, so I just to in response to that to that discussion, to me the biggest two goals yeah. are to industrialize yeah. the yeah. Indian economy, yeah. which 
you know, by the way, is a goal, as you said, from you know end of the 19th yeah. century and continues throughout, yeah. despite Gandhi yeah. trying to yeah. get that away. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, so you're trying to ru- get from a rural to an industrial economy, but there's another goal, which is also to industrialize agriculture, right? So it's industrialization in the entire economy, yeah. and that is fail has failed because you know the percentage of GDP, uh, yeah. produ- uh, sorry, percentage of the agricultural production of GDP is yeah. still you know around what is it, 50, 60% even in the 1960s. Then they put poverty alleviation in the last five-year plan, right? Which then also failed. It's really interesting, this problem about how you write about a period in which, you know, the aims of what this could be, the concepts of what planning could be, and what the technologies are, because the technologies change incredibly from, you know, the late 19th century to the late 20th. So I think all of that is, is part of the mix, and it's, that's partly why it's such an interesting problem to kind of wrap with. But I wonder also whether there's not this really significant change about the notion of national economy, mm. which um, seems even more important than planning. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, it's kind of a 19th century notion of the national economy, the list of people, and mm. the right doesn't fit with the natural laws of economics mm. in the 19th century terms. But mm. it's not occasionally that people are economic mm. nationalism, mm. are mean the same thing. Mm. It's not quite clear mm. the national economy, which is probably the term we don't use for Trump or something like that, it's not clear that what that content of that could be. Yeah. Um, um, if, if, it, if it's a, if it's a it's a Yeah. It's interesting that you say that self-sufficiency isn't 
maybe national economy. In the late 19th century, it is. Well, Self-sufficiency is. And self-sufficiency in the sense that your country doesn't have poverty, at least that's what it is for the yeah. Indian local economists in the late 19th century. It, it's not to say that you wouldn't, because to them, industrialization will help both India and Britain. Yeah. 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 In food. Or has it ever come close to that? Because it seems that's the key thing. I think that's what they're going for. Like Germany's going for this at the same time. The war is really talking about Germany's success at the I I don't actually have, but I know a friend of mine called Ben Siegel is working on on the hunger, food rights, and whether and he might actually he has looked at some of these um, files pertaining to meeting the standards in food and whether India has. But I suspect by looking at just understanding. And regularly reading Indian newspapers since I was a teenager, I don't so I would say. And now, now we actually have massive starvation and we are pretty down low on the hunger index as a case of travel of pizza. So it's a pretty hungry nation still. So, <laughs> but hasn't but hasn't the debates been more around if you look at Amrita Sen's work and and mm. Ramachandra Dutt yeah. started it yeah. at the distribution of food, yeah. right? So yeah. that Amrita Sen called it the entitlement approach, exactly. but Dutt called it you know this idea that yeah. that there's lack of access rather than lack of supply. Yeah. So it's a really good question actually to ask. Well, is has ever India ever been abducted? Yeah. But that's not the question they've been asking. Yeah. They've been asking is it a, a lower food supply that yeah. have led to famines, or is it just the Lack yeah. of access, so that means that prices perhaps gone up because mm-hmm. of the increased demand, yeah. or or because of a drought, of course, because that also happens. And then there's been a lack of access to that yeah. food because yeah. people are such so uh, are at such a low yeah. level of income. Yeah. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Let us know if you want to listen to more of these seminars. One of my fellow co-hosts, Christina Lascaridis, will be releasing the HBPE seminar that Steve Medema did last term very soon, so stay tuned for that. To stay updated, subscribe on our website, ceterusnonparibus.net. Follow us on Twitter, ceterusnparibus, and like us on Facebook. Until next time, happy researching, writing, editing, and teaching. From the whole Ceteris Non Paribus team, we wish you a very productive, interesting, and wonderful 2018.